think the first one is I'm a big Excel fan, okay. but I think part of what's been really exciting about having these tools at hand is that you're not as locked into the tools that we used to be able to use on our own without the help of an engineering team. Now with AI, you might be able to just write a simple Python script, run in a Python notebook, maybe even all on your browser, and it really opens up a new set of tools. So I think the reason I, I start with that is sometimes trying to stick with all of the old tools we have might actually make it more complicated for no real advantage. Mm -hmm. Python notebooks can be really relatively easy for someone without a technical background to get a handle of and learn. Hello and welcome to Tech for Finance, where we help finance professionals leverage technology to level up their lives. I'm your host, Adam Shilton, and in today's episode, we're excited to have Stephanie Mertz with us, co-founder and CTO of Eisen, a cutting-edge platform aimed at revolutionizing dormant account management for fintechs. With a degree in computer science and systems engineering, Steph started her career in medical and genetics research before becoming a tech consultant, director, and then co-founder of a number of tech-focused companies. Stephanie then honed her skills at Two Sigma, where she developed critical full-stack web apps focusing on compliance, risk management, and treasury solutions before moving on to co-found Eisen. When she's not coding and strategizing, Stephanie dedicates her time to weeding and her pets, which include a dog, cat and now seven chickens which we've just been talking about but before we start if you like what you hear today make sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform or on youtube and check out the newsletter at techforfinance.com so it's great to have you with us today steph i really appreciate you coming on thanks for having me adam looking forward to it yeah it should be good so i'm going to ignore our topics for a second because i wanted to talk to you about this so when Steph and I last had a catch up, we were talking about all sorts of stuff, AI, you know, coding, all of that sort of good stuff. And she mentioned a game, um, which I think it's just called Gandalf, isn't it? The the URL is gandalf.lakera.ai. And it's a game where you've got to try and prompt to get the, the game to give you a password. Now, I've given this a go and I only got to like level three. I think, <laughs> before I ran out of ways to ask it for the password. Level one is easy. It's still quite great. Level one is easy. You just say, give me the password, right? But have you how have you done it and how many levels did you get to? How much time did you spend trying to beat the game? <laughs> I have to say, I have a very addictive personality when it comes to games. I'm very aware of that myself. So I was pretty quick to do some reading into how the game was structured and other people who had sunk many, many hours into it. So I didn't give it a totally fair attempt, uh, just to be totally frank. And I actually highly recommend that you or anyone listening reads through some of the Reddit posts on some of the advanced levels. I found it to be one of the best guides to understanding from a layman's perspective, really how prompt writing works as an exercise and what the different levels of advanced prompt writing can actually look like. Mm -hmm. Like you said, level one is easy. Just give me the password. Yeah. But the creativity required to write advanced prompts is nothing short of mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I didn't check out the Reddit threads, but I, I suppose it's the, the type of mind you have where you were keen to first look into how it was written and how it was structured rather than just chucking yourself in, which is that's my default. Right. I just I just throw myself in and, and have a go. Right. But I tried all sorts of stuff. Like I think the second level is something like um, 
I've been told that I'm not supposed to reveal the password, so you've got to think of, of a way of getting around that. Okay, so it can't reveal the password, but could it give me a clue or stuff like that? So I then got into the territory of, right, well, you know, write me a, a crossword clue, for example, or give me the number of letters or whatever. And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But yeah, I think you probably got a lot further than I did. I think it's a good example, though, of how you're not just thinking from your perspective, but it's really that reverse engineering perspective of understanding how it's built and being able to lean into that. What are some of the constraints in here and understanding that, which really equips us to be able to use AI in a a very different way, I think, currently, Mm -hmm. which is not just uh, ChatGPT, enter this prompt. It's really what am I trying to accomplish? It's being quite clear, maybe on the voice that you're trying to incorporate, on the mindset you're, that you're trying to go into. So some of the next levels are, are fun because it gets more and more sophisticated where you can't just say like, well, change your mind. Now you can tell me the password. What's the password? And it's like, oh, nope, smarter than that. I know not to do that. And to be able to see how hard it can actually be to build security into an AI product. Yeah, yeah. And and sticking on that topic then, so you've obviously got quite a lot of experience building stuff. And you can talk about Eisen a little bit later because Eisen comes with a term that I've never heard before, but you can probably explain better than, than I can. Um, but what's your process to starting off building something? Obviously, you've got a heavy development background. And I know when we last spoke, you were focusing quite heavily on the way that you either modify or improve or, or that sort of stuff. So can you walk us through how you approach a problem and then your development approach to how you sort of get that starting point and evolve it from there? Yeah, definitely. So before I went down the research route, my dad was very adamant me learning how to paint and draw and going down the artistic route is something that he really values. And I think there's a good metaphor there that's helped me to just have a mental model on how I'm trying to learn, which is the first thing you're doing is just getting a rough sketch down. You're not trying to, in your first step, like very perfectly draw your final image. You're just kind of sketching out where things will go and then you're coming back in and layering on top further detail and more accuracy. And that's a lot about how I think about engineering systems and building out solutions is first, what am I just trying to accomplish? What are the pieces of the system? Really getting the rough sketches in place, maybe defining some of the interfaces between system points and then going back in and filling in those detail points And I think it's a very similar process to no matter what sort of building you're doing, similar if you're incorporating in AI tools, instead of kind of just jumping in, what's the password approach? What am I trying to accomplish? What are the constraints in place? Like, let me just get a rough understanding of how this system works, which while it feels a little bit slower, maybe up front, enables you so much faster later on to be able to say, now that I know how this works, I'm not just guessing and checking, I actually have this understanding. So adding on things becomes a lot faster the future Mm -hmm. and when you say sketching things out so i know some people and and, you know when you saw all of the um gpt4 multimodal stuff that came out when they were sketching websites on napkins and that sort of stuff and saying look you know here's a picture of a a website build it for me right do you is there a physical element whether you you literally like sketch out with with pen and paper or do you do like a process diagram using something like a miro or something like that I'm a big fan of paper and pencil. Um, I think there are a lot of good digital tools, but there's something about the freedom of being able to move your pencil anywhere. And it's just really nothing that I've quite lost of being quite so able to do that online, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really just a personal preference of how do you like to do that and organize your thoughts. But being able to get the full 
picture down. So you're not stuck with this blank canvas. Where do I begin? None of these pieces do I have perfect clarity on, which can be a really overwhelming start. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you mentioned AI there. We can pick up that conversation. We talk about it a lot, um, you know, and I'm always keen to, to to get stuck into that and go down that rebel hole where we can. But I'm, I'm conscious that people have heard quite a lot, a lot about that over the past couple of podcast episodes. So I'm going to try and bring it back so it's a bit more relevant for the audience. And this ties to some of the stuff that I sent you when we, when we were prepping for this conversation. So when we think about the day-to-day activities of somebody in finance, um, they've obviously got an existing set of tools. You know, and they are they are in theory building, you know, they might not be developing a, a load of complicated applications, but a financial model in Excel, they're building something. It has component parts, you know, calculations, and then that thought process that says, right, well, I need to develop this to get this end result, which is forecast over the next 12 months, for example. And can I build in my variables whereby, you know, if my headcount changes, how's that going to influence things and all of those sorts of things. So a lot of us are building without realizing it. But then when we look at some of the tools that sit within that, I mean, we can stay on the subject of Excel. Some people, and I know it's becoming a little bit more dated now, but um, VBA code, that's that's been used for, for, for years. Um, I guess mostly locally, I'm not an expert, um, but obviously you can, you can run VBA to automate a load of stuff. I think more recently it's moved into more of a more of an office script type thing that Microsoft are trying to push as opposed to VBA, but it's a little bit more limited than VBA. And then of course you've got all of your other stuff like your power queries and your power automates and you know your SQL and, and, and all of that sort of stuff. So with the advent of AI, obviously people are able to get to the end result quicker by saying, this is the objective that I'm trying to achieve. They might type that into ChatGPT or something like that. And it'll either then spit out VBA code or you know a, a SQL query or something like that. And to the point that in some instances, people can plug and play. But my concern around that is there's, there's sometimes a big gap in not knowing how you arrived at that result. And I know last time you spoke, you're very keen to understand how every single line of code works when, when you were developing everything, right? So what are your thoughts around, and I guess it's cheating, it's finding it a shortcut really. And I suppose there's there's scales, isn't there? Like, you know, a little tiny bit of code that you just need help, you know, developing is not going to be a, a big risk when we try and implement it. But when people are getting more complex and running larger amounts of code and they don't necessarily understand how that's gone into building the end result, what advice do you have for people that are trying to do the shortcuts and trying to get those quick wins? So many thoughts on that. I think the first one is I'm a big Excel fan, but I think part of what's been really exciting about having these tools at hand is that you're not as locked into the tools that we used to be able to use on our own without the help of an engineering team. Now with AI, you might be able to just write a simple Python script, run in a Python notebook, maybe even all on your browser, and it really opens up a new set of tools. So I think the reason I, I start with that is sometimes trying to stick with all of the old tools we have might actually make it more complicated for no real advantage. Mm -hmm. So that would be my first primitive is, are you really stuck with some of those tools? Could you maybe start with a simpler approach, a simpler set of tools? Python notebooks can be really relatively easy for someone without a technical background to get a handle of and learn. You can follow line by line what's happening. And a lot of them can even display images and graphs in the notebook itself. So it's a great self-contained tool. So that'd be my starting point is, does it have to be as complicated as it is? And then 
sometimes it does. And there's pieces where it's like, wow, ChatGPT gave me this thing or whatever tool you're using to, to help make a piece of code. And you're like, I don't get what that is. Mm-hmm. You can ask it to explain. Mm-hmm. You can find further documentation on the tools and the uh, the libraries that it's referencing to get a better understanding of those pieces. And I think there's various levels of understanding. It's like I could take a, a book about you know a, a few... I'm trying to think of like some very basic primitive technology, mm-hmm. right? Like let's say like fire or electricity mm-hmm. and you explain how something like fire or electricity works to a two-year-old in in pretty basic terms. And then when someone's four, you re-explain that with a whole lot more information. Mm-hmm. And then when they're 10, maybe you can go through more detail. I could probably still learn a ton about how fire actually works mm-hmm. and the dynamics involved and be able to model that out with equations of how heat moves through an object. Incredibly complicated. And I think code can be pretty similar. Mm-hmm. You don't have to perfectly understand everything to get that kind of first pass of understanding. You can come back in once you've learned some more and kind of refill, oh, okay, now I get how these things work. Mm-hmm. So I would say it's not a one and done of if there's a piece that you're really struggling to get, still get that end to end later understanding and come back in and fill in pieces of that puzzle mm-hmm. so i'll i'll talk through um a personal anecdote and you can tell me whether this is <laughs> the, the right or wrong approach right and it's, it's only a really simple example but it's one of those that could start as something really small but then scale into something bigger so it, it relates to data and it relates to using chat GPT to produce Python code, right? And it's the standard example that you get of having to produce information in a certain format and then trying to get rid of the time that it takes you to rearrange that data into the appropriate format, right? So in this example, I have a supplier who needs information from me in a certain format. I have that information in my current systems but I'm not willing to give all of that information to the supplier because some of it's sensitive and so on and so forth. So I can download the data and it's a spreadsheet that's got like a hundred columns and however many rows, right? But with Python, I can ask ChatGPT to say, look, the logic is this. These columns need to be um, consonated or whatever the term is. Um, If this column is this value, then I want you to add a column with this value. So it's in the terminology that the supplier understands and and so on. So that was the starting point. Got the code to the point where I could basically just run from Python. I I mean, I use um, Visual Studio code. So I was just running it from within there just just to test it. I just pointed it to the path of the Excel file that I downloaded, run it, and then saw the output from from the, the code that had been run. But of course, the first reaction to that is, that's great because I've got Visual Studio code installed on my machine. You know, um, but I'm doing all of this locally and I wouldn't be able to easily hand that to somebody else to say, look, you know, just run this Python code A because they might not have Visual Studio or, or Python even installed on their machine, nor might they be able to because company policy could dictate that, well, they don't want company devices, you know, um, running Python because obviously you've got to update file paths and make sure that Python is embedded in the machine and some pe- some companies don't like that. So my next route was then, right, ChatGPT, tell me how to turn this into an app. You know, it's only a a simple GUI um, whereby it just popped up an app that said, you know, tell me where the file is and then then I'll do the rest from there. 
And then, of course, it was running commands, uh, commands um, prompt in, in the background, which I didn't want to see. So again, there was more faffing about just to make sure that it was export. But anyway, it took me not a huge amount of time, maybe a few hours to go through that process to understand, but I know how to do it now. So I can just repeat that right to the point where I can hand an app to somebody else. But that was a very niche use case, right? And if I were to get- Is it? But, well- Is that a niche use case? I feel like that's actually quite a standard one in tech. Take a data set, manipulate it, and have this you know, manipulated end result. Maybe niche is the wrong term, but the scenario in terms of the specific format that the supplier needed was only relevant to that supplier. So it wasn't relevant to an entire business process. So it was a specific use case for one Mm. supplier. So this process would only be unique to that one supplier, right? But I'm sure because some when you get bitten by the bug right and you start doing this and you think oh my god i feel so powerful i've just written code and i've got it to work and all of this sort of stuff it is it is an amazing feeling i see why people stay developers because like it can be very addictive when you see the fruits of your labor like pop up on screen and work it's it's absolutely amazing right so it would probably take me half an hour to find another 10 or 12 similar use cases to then start building all of these different apps but it was a long way of saying that I could very quickly end up with 10 or 12 different apps that all do relatively similar things to the point where I'm then complicating process because then I've got all of this documentation that says, oh, well, when you get the scenario, run this app and this is the instructions for this or whatever. Is there a better way of, of looking at it? You know, So instead of me just jumping on that straight away and saying, look, this is a use case for the supplier, would it have been better for me to say, right, well, I've now got a framework for converting data. Let's find as many use cases of where this could work and start there. So we've got one process that's applicable to multiple inputs and multiple outputs, as opposed to, you know, repeating the process and having something that's not scalable, shall we say. And it's the scalability that I'm, I suppose that I'm getting to here. So I don't know whether you've got any thoughts on that. Yeah, it's it's such a good one, especially because the use case you gave does feel so applicable. Mm. A big part of Eisen's product is doing exactly that. Mm. We in, ingest data, we do a lot of manipulation to it. Mm. We add, we have a whole lot of logic and rule sets that we add onto it. And at the end, a lot of this data is visible in an app, right? And so we've got some other features alongside of that, but that's a very core piece of quite a number of finance apps. Mm-hmm. And I think I have a somewhat balanced answer to it, which is, not everything for all processes should all be in one app, right? I'm guessing what you worked on and what Eisen does probably deserve to be in two different places. Mm-hmm. Yet the five different processes you're talking about, perhaps there could be more simplicity in having code that reuses that and says, okay, you tell me the the integration that we're working with and then I'll pick the right output format mm-hmm. and all of this is in one app. Mm-hmm. So I think it's figuring out what the scope is that you want to be all in one place, not feeling like everything has to be all together, But then trying to say, okay, I made this version one. Do I now make a second copy of this? Or do I try to iterate on version one to make this more flexible? Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that you could say, okay, take a mapping of this is what the format is for this one output. This is what the format is for output two and still have that as all of one system. Mm -hmm. So you're not really locked into having to make a new app every time you want to do something slightly different from the other one. Mm No, that's, that's valid because, I mean, in my mind now, I'm thinking, because what I didn't do, as per your suggestion earlier, was get the AI to tell me what the different lines of code were doing. 
you know, and, and if there is one thing that people take away from this conversation is if you are getting anything to generate code on your behalf, do make sure that it adds in those notations and that commentary just so that it's all really crystal clear what, what each element is doing. But I suppose it's a valid point, you know, so if the GUI, like the little app that turns up is good, then that's, I guess, a reusable element. So I could say, right, well, I, I like the app output that came from that. I'll just copy it into, you know, version two and keep that and then iterate over time, right? It does get tricky though, right? Because in the same way that you manage files and folders and have lots of different versions of Excel documents, you can very quickly end up with lots of different versions of, of code. And I'm I'm not a developer, you know, uh, I do have a little bit of experience with, with coding, developing apps and all of that sort of stuff. But I, I am not familiar with say like GitHub, GitHub repos and all of the different stuff that goes with, you know, uh, being able to use a bit of code from here and use a bit of code here. So is there, do we need to apply the same best practice as we would in terms of um, folder arrangement, version tracking, all that sort of stuff in the same way that we would with like Excel and internal documentation to the way that we would in developing code? I think it really depends on how critical that code and app is. Mm. Is it as critical as an Excel file that's part of a critical business process? There's a reason we version those files and we have backups and they're not all local. If it's a critical business process, you want to have a backup option and system in place. Mm. And I think it's the same with code. If it's just something you're playing around with to learn, to further your skills, you don't have to go over the top and making sure you have GitHub and version control. Mm. But if this is replacing what used to be a critical Excel file with a now critical app, mm. I would say it should be exactly the same level of care. Okay. I, I do think um, there's a lot of daunting verbiage around engineering and coding, <laughs> like GitHub as this big, scary thing. And I went through this myself when I went through computer science in college. A lot of the other students in the class had been coding since they were, you know, four or five. And it's like, wow, how am I going to ever catch up or know what they're talking about? And it's just really not the case that they there's this huge mysterious world that you can't start to crack i would say like it's not unreasonable for you to actually become quite comfortable with github that's not a a, a crazy idea it's actually a very well-built product that has varying levels of of how um complex and custom you can use it but you can use it just as a dashboard where you upload files to and treat it as a version control system mm -hmm. there are non-egregious ways i think to to create that same sort of safety and process that we had with something like an Excel file that you might have with local code. Mm. Um, and coming back to your making sure that the code explains what, what you're doing, the real reason for that in my mind is something's going to break. Something always breaks. Something is broken in Excel. Something will break with code, right? It doesn't matter if it worked on the first version. Someone's going to upload weird data you haven't seen before. And the real reason to understand is when that happens, you can start to have ideas of oh, I think it was this piece that broke. Mm -hmm. And I can explain, oh, can you update, you know, maybe this piece of code or I can go back in and maybe I know it's breaking and I can fix it. Mm -hmm. But if you don't know how any of this is happening when something breaks, you're, you're much more likely to just throw up your hands and say, you're on your own, go back to Excel. Mm -hmm. Now that's that's all valid stuff. And, and the, the other thing that I'd add there as well is if you are developing, you know, wh whether it's an Excel spreadsheet, whether it's a, you know, a little app like we've just described there, the question I'd always ask myself as well is, will anybody else use this either now or in the future? Um, because it's probably going to be easier for you to document the way that it's to be used whilst you're whilst you're building it. So if you've got the commentary in the code and you're in at that moment, it's just as easy to say, look, you know, just write a... Um, 
either a guide or a you know docu- document how this works for others you know would be an easy step to make sure that you've always got like the equivalent readme file or that it's it's clearly defined what it's used for because otherwise if you're just sharing apps it's not always clear why it was built what the purpose is and how it's going to be used by others as well so that's the only other thing i'd add there yeah, I think we we had this wave of boot camps mm. that made coding feel so much more accessible. Mm. No matter your professional background, you can go through a boot camp and and you too can become really up to date mm. on mm. how to become an engineer and a developer and and use all the modern tools. Mm. And I think this is really our second wave of education that's much more self-led mm. where it's really breaking down the walls of you don't have to commit to a professional career pivot. That's that's not what this is for most people. It's it's skill building. Mm. And I think we're all starting to realize that the further we all get along this engineering spectrum, so much more capable and, and self, um, that's what I'm looking for. Like y- you as an entity, like you are able to say, I have this problem mm. and then solve this problem mm. for yourself. Mm. And that ability is just, it's so empowering. Even if you get to a point of saying, okay, now I've built out this first version of this, this is really critical. This is going to be used across the company. Mm. It is not reasonable for Adam as a single person to do version control and testing <laughs> and all the things that would make this, you know, a product that an entire company should be relying on mm. as one person who can now never go on vacation. <laughs> but I, I still think there's a natural maturation cycle where this could be like a great test version that now gets passed off to an engineering team who doesn't have to go back and forth on what the spec really is of like, well, how do you want the data transformation to happen? Mm -hmm. But I I do think like you aren't stuck on being this one entity that has to manage this forever. Mm -hmm. Such a, yeah, such a valid point. Yeah. If you can delegate and transfer that, that piece over to people that can manage that process. As you say, if, if it is like critical, right? You know, it could be that we're building for a use case that is just a personal use case. And if it's low risk, then then why not, right? But as I say, just just be careful because as soon as you start getting into code, you know, especially if it's installed locally on company property and something goes wrong, then, you know, that's that's a bit of a risk, right? I don't want to scare people off because I think everybody should at least have a play, but it's just, uh, it's just a consideration, right? So I was at an event not too long ago it was it was an excel summit so global excel summit um it's here in the uk in london um and yeah i, I met a couple of my friends there a couple a couple of great people and we kind of absorbed for the day some of the, some of the content and of course you know ai was a hot topic but there was also some really interesting stuff about you know um ways that you can automate with excel at the core for example or python was also quite a hot topic because now there's a beta version where you can use python in excel so i'll i'll, I'll walk you through the scenario and you can maybe say whether that was the, the best way of doing it um so there's a, a lady called layla garani um, she's got about two and a half million followers on YouTube, so not that many. But but she um, she does Excel and Power BI training. That's that's her thing, right? That's what her YouTube channel is is dedicated to. And the presentation she gave at the event was how she learned machine learning. Yeah, because she wanted to take the feedback from her courses that was basically plain text, right? So unstructured data. Yeah, and this this could be hundreds, right? So hundreds of lines of feedback. But she's quite keen on understanding, right, well, is this something that needs to be actioned or is this something that can be ignored? Because, of course, she wants to improve and make sure that she is actioning any feedback that would improve the quality of the courses, right? So she thought, I'm pretty sure that I could use machine learning here. You know, if I were to train this to say this needs action, this doesn't need action. So, of course, straight away she went into asking 
ChatGPT or whatever AI tool you use. Um, I want to use machine learning to, you know, basically break out sentiment and determine whether something was actionable or not. Yeah. But failed because I think obviously machine learning, she got to the point where she distilled it to its essence and she found a simple step by step. But initially it was too complicated and the type of code being thrown out despite asking to, you know, describe it as it went along wasn't usable in the context that, that she gave it. So she thought, right, well, I could be here for days and days, you know, trying to iterate on the last response that ChatGPT gave, and I could never get to that end goal that I wanted. So she then moved to say, right, well, machine learning is just a general gap. You know, I literally have no knowledge of machine learning. So is it worth me just getting that baseline to understand the methodology and how machine learning is trained and implemented before I then ask ChatGPT to write the code? So she went to a network, you know, she watched a few YouTube videos and that sort of stuff. She thought, ah, okay, well, now I have a process. Yeah, so she then got ChatGPT to go step by step through the process instead of, I guess, looking at that end result and trying to work back from there. And and she got there in the end, right? So it actually turned out to be quite simple. You know, it was a line of Python code that ended up in the, the Python element of Excel. And then she ran that against a table to then return either a one or a zero for something that was actionable or not. That all made sense to me. Would you agree that there's a scope to say, right, well, maybe don't go straight to AI for the answers. Do build that foundational knowledge, if, especially if it's with a more complex subject? My mental model for this is having a scaffolding. Okay. There has to be some sort of scaffolding for the extra knowledge to cling on to. Mm. If you don't have any kind of even scaffolding knowledge about a topic, I think it can be really hard to understand. It's hard to read an advanced book on a topic mm-hmm. if you don't know anything about the topic. It's just all words you haven't heard before, just falling through these giant gaps. I, I do think that AI has come quite a long way in, in helping you to basically be a search engine as well. Mm-hmm. And so you can still go through that iterative process of first explain, like, how would I do a very basic version of this? Like, what are the pieces in play? Before you even say, give me code, mm-hmm. just help me understand how would someone come across this process? Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that there is evolving learning on, on what is the best way to go about prompt writing in general mm-hmm. to get to what you're wanting. Mm-hmm. I do wonder, I'm curious to listen if she has a YouTube video of if the end output was actually the same as the beginning output, mm-hmm. but then she was able to understand it so much better and make the small tweaks needed. Mm-hmm. Or if through her understanding, what actually happened is she learned enough to write her prompts mm-hmm. much more accurately. Mm-hmm. And I might bet it's the latter that she didn't know what to ask for in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so when she was getting something back, it was maybe what she asked for literally, but wasn't actually a helpful output for her. Mm-hmm. And that additional knowledge and understanding mm-hmm. helped her to craft a much more accurate request mm-hmm. of what she was looking for. I think the fundamental piece, and I'm by no means giving an, uh, an accurate representation of this, but the aha moment, in her words, came when she understood that with a machine learning algorithm, it doesn't see text as text. So when you train the algorithm, it converts characters into numbers. So literally converting everything to ones and zeros. So that that, um, what's it called, a string, that string of characters from the text would then be converted. And it looked really complicated. Again, hundreds of columns with just ones and zeros in them or, you know, points of 0.432, whatever, for it to then understand 
what the patterns were because it's pattern recognition isn't it you know and and this is the concept that i struggle with because we as humans we read text in order you know we 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 see things start to finish you know machines don't see things in that way it's 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 very much a right well i'm looking for a pattern you know i don't understand what a word means in the same way as you do and i think that's what helped with the training piece specifically it was the conversion of the string into the numbers to be able to chain uh, train the algorithm that i guess was the missing link in the chain this comes right back to our Gandalf conversation yeah. on the game at the beginning of this in understanding how it's going to interpret what you say and what are the constraints and the patterns that go into building these systems. It makes it infinitely easier mm. to interact with them. Mm. My first foray into machine learning was on image classification yep. and I had a very similar experience, right? It's like, how can a computer tell an image from another? Okay, well, let's look at how it's breaking down the pixels into numbers. Mm-hmm. How is it determining what's like this? It's looking for these patterns and the numbers that it's determining from these pictures mm-hmm. and being able to understand it. Now it says, okay, if something's not working because maybe my accuracy rate is not particularly high. I think at this point we were trying to identify pedestrians in pictures. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, it thinks this pole is a pedestrian. Why? Like, how how can I increase the accuracy here and understanding like, oh, okay, it thinks this pattern looks like this pattern of an upright human. How can I now supply it with more training data mm-hmm. to help address this problem as opposed to, ooh, my accuracy is low. And then you just kind of go throw the kitchen sink at it. Mm-hmm. And I might be wrong about this and, and maybe you know better than, than I, but... I think we are training machine learning algorithms day to day without necessarily realizing it. So whenever you've been to a website that asks for a capture and it's just come to my mind in you saying, you know, this is a pole, not a pedestrian, is when it comes up and says, choose all of the squares that are cars, choose all of the squares that are traffic lights, for example. It's effectively the same thing, aren't we? You know, we're supporting that by saying we're going to help you by actually identifying for yourself. One of the most brilliant business models I think I've ever seen is that company that basically got all of these free training points, people who are willing to supply it information Mm. and help train the models to then have very accurate models. Absolutely brilliant business model. Scary though, isn't it? Scary. (laughs) You know, and and, and I often have a giggle to myself because of course, you know, one of the biggest pushbacks still is, is my, is my data safe? Yeah. Um, Especially if it's used to train a model. But I don't think people often understand just how many data points companies have on us just by using phones or visiting websites. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's bonkers, you know, but obviously, yeah, security is a concern, right? But I think people would be surprised if they understood exactly how many data points they feed into <laughs> the cloud every day, irrespective of whether they're using AI or not, right? <laughs> Yeah, I know. Um, It was top of mind for me because we've been recently going through our SOC 2 audits Mm. and part of this is doing security trainings for employees. Um, I am curious. I haven't done a good look around at all the vendor tools, but it was really just making me think about how much of a gap there has been and what security training for employees has looked like in the past Mm. to really addressing like what modern needs are. Most, I, I think, a lot of the security problems that you're training around employees are preventable things that people are doing accidentally. Mm. Bad actors, a whole different category. Mm -hmm. But we have such a problem now with good actors who just didn't realize that pasting all of their, you know, company data into a tool that was going to help them figure out how to transform it Mm. doesn't mean that that data is safe and protected. Mm. Did you hear um, about that CFO deepfake scam recently? So I don't know about the CFO one. I can't. I can't remember. I think it was in China. Um, 
And I didn't read a, a huge amount into it because I like reading positive news rather than negative news. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. But um, they, a company or somebody posing as the company managed to deep fake the CFO of a company and get an employee to transfer them something like $15 million or something like that. Wow. And they did it. Like, it's mad. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm mad. sure this person was educated, had gone through a security training. Like These mistakes happen. And when it's someone else, it's so easy to be like, oh, I would never do that until you realize how convincing some of these situations can be. I was recently looking at the Sora product that came out by ChatGPT on making videos. Yeah, that, yeah. And if you showed me one of these videos, absolutely no way I could tell that this was generated. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think, it's S is it S-O-R-A? Think S O R A. I assumed it was pronounced Sora, but I realized yeah, I don't have I any so. proof Yeah, pe that. people need to... <laughs> to Google, even though should we even use the term Google anymore? People need to search Sora because it's it's very impressive. It is very impressive. I mean, people thought stuff like Runway and all that sort of stuff was impressive when it came out, but this is like next level stuff. But if you um, if you just search CFO deepfake, you'll see the CNN headline that was finance worker pays out $25 million after video call with deepfake chief financial officer. Wow. Mad, isn't it? Absolutely mad. It is because you know it's not going to be a one-off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that that's it. So, yeah, it's, it's what I think about with my kids. To be fair, you know, because they're immersed in iPads now and all of that sort of stuff. Is you know how how are they going to be able to differentiate fact from fiction in the future? And I saw some other headlines recently where some some jurisdictions have banned AI calling. You know, so like for sales and marketing. So there's some really credible like auto dialer box that sound exactly like a human that countries are basically outlawing to say look you know we, we, we can't have this sort of stuff so i think the yeah the the legislation and all of that sort of stuff i think we're a bit behind with that you know t tech is ahead of where we are knowing how to deal with it and i don't really see how we're gonna we're gonna close that gap but anyway maybe, maybe with more tech so <laughs> startup today that had raised money to identify deep fake videos <laughs> yeah that's it so but uh, right so let's uh, maybe move a little bit away from the, the doom and gloom even though it's all it's all interesting <laughs> stuff right but so we talked a bit about python so that use case that i gave um around the machine learning for sentiment and whether something is actionable obviously that revolves heavily around um, data analysis and pattern recognition Obviously, this is key in the finance space, especially if you're in FPNA, because if you can use algorithms via Python to do your like, you know, your regression analysis and all of that sort of stuff, it's good because it can add more value to your predictions and all of that good stuff past what you do in a, a standard financial model, for example. So, so that's great stuff. So I think when people think about Python, they generally think about algorithms and more of that analytics piece. They don't necessarily think of it in terms of that raw code that can automate processes. So my next question is, on the automation side of things, in terms of the, the levels that people need to be thinking about, so the, the way that I think about things ten, tends to be in terms of levels and, and hierarchies. 
so when I think about software, you know, I think of, you know, small, medium and large, you know, um, entry level, SME, enterprise grade systems, all that sort of stuff. And I, I kind of try and benchmark, right, well, if a company is this size, they might need this type of solution. And if a company gets to this point, then obviously they're going to need something that's a little bit more bespoke and, and that sort of stuff. So we've talked about the use case of generating a bit of code for an app. I'm just going to shut my door because my kids are screaming. Hang on a second. No worries. Which I suppose is entry-level automation based on a personal use case. Of course, we could have business use cases if companies are using like um, VBA Office Script and that sort of stuff to automate stuff as a team, shall we say. But then the next level might be something like if you've got the Microsoft stack using Power Automate to chain some stuff together, you know, so... Um, if somebody does this, create this folder in this location and then so on and so forth. And then, of course, you've got low-code tools like your Zapiers and your make.coms before you then start getting into um, automation anywhere and UI path and all of those you know, more complex stuff. So how do you think people need to be thinking about this in terms of when they need to use what tool and when? Because a lot of people just resort to say, right, well, I don't even know how to think about that sort of stuff. So I'll stick with my Excel. I'll stick with my VBA because I don't really know where to go from here. So obviously, you've developed a ton of stuff, right? You know, so obviously, a dedicated app for a specific purpose as you're doing with with um, with Eisen is, is completely justified. But is there sort of like stuff for the messy middle whereby people can think in terms of right well if i've got this level of problem then maybe i need to use this automation platform if i've got this level of i don't know whether you can speak around that whether you've got experience of it yeah i I think uh my perspective is probably biased by being on the software engineering side but i think so often we end we aim for the middle Mm. and then we regret it (laughs) Like, oh, this this breaks more often than I thought. Uh, this product that I was using got decommissioned. Mm. Like, I don't know how to upgrade this. You're stuck with this. I, I think there is a unknown cost to going that route a lot of the time. Mm. Whereas with engineering, we've had a pretty predictable pattern where we know what support is going to look like mm. for traditionally built products. Mm. There might be some unexpected bugs and unexpected issues, but we know like update cadence, there's best practices. It's it's pretty known yet expensive quantity, mm. right? So I think that's kind of the, the two sides of this coin is uh, where is it going to go in the future? And, and are you going to really regret that choice? Mm. Because you're going to be kind of stuck in that choice. Mm. If you go down, say a, a Zapier route, mm you're not just going to be able to pass it off to an engineer and say, you're a problem. They're, they're probably gonna be like, no, nah, no, nah, that's, that's your problem. <laughs> and so <laughs> I think that'd be where my head goes is what's the level of criticality? How is this going to grow over time? What's your support plan for this? Mm. And, and are you comfortable with that longevity piece in play? That's just so much of our driving mindset in engineering is resilience, redundancy, thinking about security. The coding piece is the small piece. Mm all the rest of these pieces are what take up the majority of our time. Mm. And so I think we can shortcut things by being able to build these quick versions, a self-use product, something you're doing on your own to learn, maybe something you're doing to automate a process just for yourself or a small team Mm. and have that level of independence. Mm. But I do think there is some level of enterprise risk and having too much be planned without a view for the future Mm. of, here's this product that no one's supporting that someone built in a basically a hackathon mm. style way. Because then again, you, you're kind of reliant on one individual, aren't you? If if you've got like a, like a Zapier or a, or a Make or a Power Automate, you know, um, 
nerd within your team, for example, you know, and, and I'm guilty of that, right? You know, with, with my company, you know, um, oh, I'll, I'll just I'll just create a power automate automation for, for this sort of stuff, right? But I think you're valid in saying, does it scale? So I think maybe a takeaway for people listening is, to your point, what is the level of criticality? And maybe we say, right, well, there is potentially a middle ground whereby the next step is warranted by a slightly more mature automation platform like a, like a Maker or a Zapier or a Power Automate, but not to the point where we try and build our entire business processes into that. Well, I'm just, the, the question I'm, it's that question that I'm missing that teams can ask themselves to be able to make that decision on whether they go here or whether they go here. And for people listening, my hands are just at different levels. One's middle and one's, one's higher up. So but I don't, I don't necessarily think that's a, I don't think there's a general answer to that. I don't think there's any way to say that, oh, you know, if you have, you know, this team and this level of complexity that you use this, or you have this team and this level of complexity, you need to go to this enterprise solution. I think it is very much on a, on a case by case basis. I'm a worst case scenario planner. Mm. It's how I think about life. It's how I think about work. I think it's a very engineering mindset. My single question for that would be, what's your backup plan? Mm. So your Zapier integration fails. Are you going back to a business process that's kind of annoying? It's got some extra clicks, but it's fine. Mm. Maybe that's a fine option then. Or if this breaks, is your whole team going to be scrambling, trying to figure out how to log into a system that no one has access to Mm. because this was built so long ago? No one knows what the process is even doing. It's poorly documented. No one even understood it when they built it at the time. Mm. And everyone's going to be really frustrated, if not in a really tough spot. Mm. I think that's how I would view that. Whereas if your answer to that is um, in that direction, go build the good version of it. Mm. Don't put yourself in that position. Mm -hmm. But if it's maybe creating a proof of concept, like, yeah, I used to do this in Excel and it was annoying Mm. and this saves a bit of time. But if this broke, okay, it's annoying. We'd have to do it in Excel again, but not a big deal. Mm. That's a fine option. Mm. And I'll I'll tell a quick story. And I I don't think I've told this on the podcast before. Maybe I have, but either way, it, it hits home that point. So some of the customers that I've worked with have been sort of like um, fast moving consumer good esque type businesses, you know, so high volumes of low value items, right? And those sorts of companies will often have a core platform, whether it's an ERP or inventory management system. And then that will be chained to an e-commerce system. And if you are high volume and you have an ERP connected to an e-commerce system whereby it is critical for that connection to be working, it means that if that integration were to break, you could end up with a backlog of hundreds or thousands of orders that you're not able to process because you're not able to get the data from one place or the other because there is no reversion there. You know, Either it's in the system or it's downloaded manually and each order is done one by one. Do, do you know what I mean? And, and and the example here was the there was an update. And I, I think it may have been in either the e-com, I think it was in the e-com platform or something like that, but basically it changed the character in the integration. So, so it added some sort of Korean character and the whole integration broke. So, so they, they went back through that, they, they suffered the scenario that I just mentioned, whereby that single change of a character in a line of code meant that they lost track of a few hundred orders that not only set them back in terms of on-time delivery, but also loss of revenue in terms of either goods lost or 
do you see what I mean? So yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with your level of criticality and is it supported? What's the backup plan? Because that's a real tangible example of where there's a loss of revenue. You know, sometimes people can handle loss of time, but obviously, you know, money is critical for every business, right? So that's <laughs> that's something you want to avoid losing, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's something we think about first and foremost in engineering it's not just build the system, it's build the system, write all the tests for it, make sure you have a backup plan, make sure you're having backup data. There's there's so much that goes into it. And sometimes that's overkill. Mm-hmm. The, the term over-engineering is a real phrase. You don't need to do all of that if you're maybe simplifying a process that is a nice convenience, mm-hmm. but fine if it breaks. Mm-hmm. So so we've talked about risk and backup. We've, talk, we've talked about how you sort of sketch stuff out you know and, and want to know how sort of the mechanics behind the scenes will work before you go about either bu- building or solving a problem are there any other frameworks that you apply either when you're evolving the the systems that you built to date or just in in general day-to-day life in terms of efficiency and, and and operations that you tend to walk yourself through you mentioned scaffolding is there anything else similar that you you work by one of our really helpful ones is is this an Eisen problem? Is the problem we're trying to solve unique to us? Okay. A pretty small percentage of problems are Eisen specific problems. <laughs> a pretty significant percentage, it's like, well, either every startup faces this and you know, let's say hiring, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't particularly want to manage payroll. I have no experience in that. We are, that's not an Eisen problem. That's an every startup problem. And we, you know, bought a service and a tool that does payroll. So there's no reason for us to now go even like use chat GPT and try and build a payroll system. That doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really helpful guiding light for us of where are we investing our time and are we investing in the right places? And when we narrow down that list, then we can do that list. Well, Mm -hmm. we don't have to do the quick and dirty version of eyes and specific problems. Mm -hmm. Now we have the bandwidth to do those well, because we're much more focused on just those. Mm -hmm. And okay. Coming back to, to those, those problems then, because you probably had scenarios in the past where you've got to the end of doing something, maybe code is the example, right? And then next time you've come around to doing it, you remember the struggle from last time and you know not to do that. So for people that are listening that maybe want to think about enhancing their workflow, maybe dabble in a bit of code or anything like that, is there any any advice that you'd give to them? If you were giving advice to yourself, it's a cheesy question, right? If you were giving advice to yourself when you first started on this journey, what would you either ask people to avoid, is there anything that you ask people to focus on to speed up that learning journey? Oh, it's a good one. Uh, don't bite off more than you can chew. <laughs> like your first project doesn't have to be a full system build. You can do something like building some graphs and some visuals for a data set you already have. Mm-hmm. That's great. It's useful. It might not be like you know, a 90 degree change for the business where this is going to dramatically change the whole business, mm-hmm. but it's useful. You get a handle for the tools. If you do get stuck, it's not incredibly frustrating. Not everything is riding on it. And just being really mindful about the projects you use as your learning opportunities mm-hmm. so that you get that positive feedback cycle for yourself. Like you were talking about that feeling of finishing a project of it going well mm-hmm. is so addicting. Mm-hmm. It is definitely a big reason that I like the role that I'm in mm-hmm. is it feels so good when something works. Mm-hmm. So give yourself the opportunity to feel that as often as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I had that recently. So I've been, I've, I've actually been um, delving quite a lot into, into make 
it was, it was formerly uh, Integromat. Um, a, I like the colors because it's like all of the different modules have like bright purple or bright green, you know, and, and you know, humans are like that, right? We, we like color. I mean, there's a lot of color in my office, right? People say one of the best things you can do to stop using your phone is turn it to grayscale because you, your brain doesn't light up as much when you look at the screen, right? But any, anyway, it's not the only reason that I use Mate. But I've been embedding the OpenAI API within the Make workflows just to see, you know, what at least a basic merge of AI and automation looks like, because I think sometimes people bundle it into the same category. You know, they consider AI and automation the same thing, whereas they're not really. There's crossovers, but, you know, when you talk about robotic process automation, it's not the same as, you know, having a fake brain supporting you with a, a problem to solve or analytics or something like that, right? And I remember the first time that I learned how to chain that prompt as part of that make workflow and the first time i did it is i just tied it to my gmail and i said right well for all emails in this folder give this prompt to do me a summary and then drop the summary into a spreadsheet yeah and the satisfaction of having it do what i said you know run the prompt and then end up as as the end result was was really really good but i suppose this will be one of the last questions that i ask and then you can tell people about eisen and, and the good stuff that you're doing there is I think what I'm learning at the moment, and I'm hoping to learn more about it, is I'm I'm very quick to say, and I did a post about it that was maybe a bit controversial, that, that prompt engineering is dead because there was all this buzz when ChatGPT first came about, right? Um, and then people ended up with all these frameworks. And I, and I, I did a couple myself, you know, um, give context, give clear instructions, give examples, all of that sort of stuff. And, and nothing about that was wrong. I very quickly found that as these models advanced, you wouldn't need this complicated prompt because the level of un the level of base understanding in the AI can give you more from poorer prompts, if that makes sense. So to me, I see it as the art of asking good questions versus the art of you know doing a really complicated like uh, markup style prompt with different categories and, and different stuff like that. But the reason I said that context is at that same event that I went to last week, there was actually a Microsoft spokesperson that walked through how they're using generative AI labs. So I think it's just called Excel Labs, and you can download it for free, I think, and just embed it into, into Excel to do that. Um, what's it called? Uh, it's like that fill, you know, when you, you click down in Excel and it takes basically the first rows and then it will it will spill down the column. But that's generative AI using that because it's looking at how that column was a result of the initial responses and then it's automatically inferring that from the rest that, that have dropped down, right? But the thing that I found really interesting is they walked through it step by step. And until then, I'd not heard of the concept of like one shot and two shot prompts. I don't know whether you've heard this. You probably know a lot more than me about it. So you, you're familiar with the concept of one, one shot and two shot prompting? Heard of, but I'm definitely not a prompt writing expert. Okay. You, you and me both, <laughs> but, but, um, basically a shot is an example, right? You know, so it was, um, the example gave, uh, was like green is to blank blue is to blank. Right. And of course, even a human looking at that, let alone AI, I'm thinking, what is this? I have no idea how to <laughs> fill in those blanks. Right. But then if you added before that, green is to excel blue is to word for example do you, do you see what i mean you can then say oh well i can fill in the missing gaps right 
So the shot would be giving the AI one example. Yeah. So green is to Excel and then blue is to, and it would probably get it right because, you know, you're giving the game away. It's, it's a simple example, right? But then in giving extra shots, it's almost like links to what we're saying in training, the, the machine learning algorithm, right? You know, it's looking at... It's the exact same. Yeah, exactly the same, right? So if I've got more examples, then the accuracy of my output is likely to be to be better, right? And that's the whole principle behind the generative AI labs and the way that it's using that intelligence in the background to take what you're giving as examples in the cells that already exist and then dropping those down for it to then infer the context and populate the correct values. So I think there is still going to be, and I'm going to eat my words based on my LinkedIn post, I think there is still going to be scope for prompt engineers as in a skill set tied to development, but I don't think that day-to-day, you know, lay people like us are going to need to learn how to prompt engineer with day-to-day AI. So I think my recommendation is, yeah, if you want to learn about the complex prompting that's used to train the models in the background, then great, fully boots, but don't think necessarily that to advance your career, you need to be amazing at writing prompts because the AIs are going to get more intelligent. I don't know whether you'd agree, you know, I don't know whether you've had any thoughts about this, but yeah, that's just my two cents. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think it's it's really always a question of what are you trying to accomplish? Mm. Are you going to be using AI for somewhat standard tasks? Mm-hmm. Then you probably don't need to write super sophisticated prompts. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to be coming back and honing your output and trying to get something quite specific and, and maybe something that's a little bit more experimental, mm-hmm. I do still think that the ability to write a good prompt is not something that everyone is gifted with. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, is is there a tool that you can use instead, right? Because there's, I mean, again, I'm going to eat my words because I always tell people don't, you know, don't just sign up for 100 tools because you'll fatigue yourself and only one of them will probably be useful, right? Because everybody's trying to sell something with an AI badge on it at the moment, right? But I think for me, when they were going through that presentation of showing how those generative AI labs things worked in the background, I was just thinking I can do that in um, ChatGPT for Sheets, which has been around pretty much since ChatGPT was released, right? You can go to the Google Marketplace, just type ChatGPT for Sheets, and you can build it in, and it does the exact same thing. So don't try and overcomplicate things if, if there's if there's already a tool, right? And then, you know, there are real-life examples, you know, if we forget about the prompting for a second, is you know, expense categorization, for example, you know, that that's a really good use case. If you've got two lines where you can populate to say, right, well, that was travel, that was fuel or whatever, you could just drop down and it automatically categorizes, you know, they're the use cases. And that's what you need to be aiming for rather than thinking about, oh, you know, how do I, how do I write a really complicated prompt for that output? So yeah, there, it's not always easy to know where to look, but sometimes there are tools often free <laughs> that can speed up that process without you having to learn how to become a prompt engineer. But yeah, I'll save the rest totally. for another Expense day. categorization is not a specific to whatever company you're at problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So we're coming up to an hour and you're, you're a busy person. You've got a company to run. <laughs> Can you just explain, because I've not seen it before, is it pronounced a sheetment? Is that how it's pronounced? Spot on. Yeah. Not usually so accurate for a first attempt. There we go. So what is a sheetment? Why is Eisen focused on it, and what what you help what you aim to help people with as a company? 
Certainly. We help banks, brokers, financial institutions, you mentioned fintechs at the beginning, Mm -hmm. manage their dormant and inactive accounts. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., there's a state-by-state law called unclaimed property, which originates from achievement laws in the UK. So we thank you for your gift to us. Hey, no problem. Um, <laughs> yeah, it really, really dates back there. But the, the goal is to help unite people with their funds. Mm-hmm. And if a financial institution has lost track of an owner and they're not in contact anymore, they do some analysis, send it over to the state, and the state helps return those funds mm-hmm. to the individual. But there's a lengthy process on the financial institution to be able to comply with 50 different state laws to be able to manage their data set and we do this in an api tech first way okay amazing and it's is it e-i-s-e-n have i got that right is that you is that url as well it's with eisen.com eisen.com so go go and check it out as i say i wasn't familiar with the terminology but you know i'm a brit so yeah i'll fine i'll take the credit for that it's not not a problem at all (laughs) so I'll ask you the last question that I generally ask my guests when I can and when I remember is all about techs. Everybody who knows me will tell you that I'm a self-professed productivity app gadget, you know, browser extension, you know, whatever it is type guy. You know, if there's something that I see cool that I think could optimize my productivity, I'll click sign up. I'll go through the trial and waste a load of time on it. Right. But do you have like an app on your phone, a browser extension, even a desktop app. We could even be a physical, um, you know, a physical gadget. We had Tamer at um, Calls will say his favorite gadget was his uh, one one blade shaver, right? I know you spoke about your um, your light ring earlier, which is which is which is quite cool. Is there anything else that you think, either in your personal or professional life, you just couldn't live without? My lamp is awesome, and it's quite funny because all of my coworkers now have one because we got one for every desk on the office. I love them. It is a super bright, they call it a vitamin D light, yeah. and it has just changed my experience of working hours. Mm. I'm the type of person that as soon as the sun sets, my body is like, great time to go to bed <laughs> and everything else is done which is not very helpful and that's at 3 30 or 4 mm-hmm. that is definitely top of my list a mm-hmm. uh, tech product that i do love is loom i don't mm-hmm. know if you've used them before yeah. but it is i'm such a visual learner it is so much faster to just be like here's what i'm talking about here's what i'm stuck on here's what i'm trying to explain and just have a quick recording that you send to someone mm-hmm. than trying to get the right english words to very accurately describe what you're running into <laughs> Yeah, so so Loom's great. I'm I'm a heavy user of of Loom, um, whether it's the instructional stuff or it's just doing like screen screen recordings to talk through and all of that sort of stuff. So, yeah, we've not had it recommended on the podcast before. Um, even though people who have consumed my content have been consuming stuff that was recorded on Loom, and um, I don't know whether you follow him. I think he's pretty good. There's a, there's a dude called um, Matt Gray. If I've got his name right. Hmm. So he does, uh, he calls it the founder OS. He's also the founder of a company called Herb, I think, as well. Just check his name. Just like the movie? Mm, Yeah, so it is. It's Matt Gray, G-R-A-Y. Anyway, I mentioned him because he's a big fan of Loom, and he refers to um, the founder flywheel as basically a set of best practices so that you can build momentum within your business. And obviously he's all about automation, delegation of stuff that would consume time that could be used for more fruitful activities, right? But he's a big fan of Loom and his rule is anything you catch yourself doing more than once that you could delegate to somebody else, record yourself doing a Loom video and just send it to them. 
Yeah, whether it's um, like Upwork that you're outsourcing to like a contractor or something like that, whether it's a team member that, you know, you don't really want to write down instructions, you just want to record yourself. That's a, that's a really good use case. Um, another win could just be recording a Teams meeting, right? You know, it's, it's effectively doing the same thing. But I, I hear what you're saying about the Loom transcripts. That's that's a really useful feature to have the text pulled out as you're speaking as well. And I think it was the um, it was the Lumi lamp, didn't you say? L-U-M-I-E is how exactly that's spelled, that I think. Yeah. And it was the um, so I looked at these because I do struggle from SAD, you know, the seasonal affective disorder. But I think you and I both agree that. I don't think a lamp's going to solve that sort of stuff. You know, I think actually getting out, you know, in the limited daylight hours is going to solve that problem rather than a lamp. But yeah, I'm all for making sure that we've got natural light as much as possible. But yeah, if a lamp helps, then great. It's definitely a plus. Fabulous. So, I mean, this has been an amazing conversation. I'm sure that we could talk for, for hours and hours, but I really appreciate you coming on. You've inspired me to start writing more code and <laughs> you know get that dopamine hit and then i'll have to get back to you on the final level that i reach with with gandalf but i'll put it all in the show notes so people can play the game um but until next time it's been it's been really good speaking with you stuff likewise it was a lot of fun definitely ping me when you get stuck on <laughs> <I'll do> it. <laughs> thanks Steph. see you later